Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 22nd of February. Today, Labour denies Tory claims that Gordon Brown's bad temper makes him unfit to be Prime Minister. I think the big question is whether Gordon Brown can convince people that this anger isn't a great cause or whether it's him actually getting angry about a storm in his teacup. Also today, proposals for a change in the global strategy to tackle AIDS. Universal testing for HIV and then giving everyone who comes up positive antiretroviral drugs. Why the current NATO operation in Helmand province is just a rehearsal for the main showdown with the Taliban this summer in Kandahar. And if you've ever fancied buying a Dalek, now's your chance. A giant auction of Doctor Who props. Kylie Minogue's waitress stress. I mean, anything to do with Kylie Minogue is bound to be incredibly sought after. First, our top story. The Conservatives say Gordon Brown's character is now at the centre of the political debate as the election approaches. Claims that a paranoid Prime Minister bullied Downing Street staff and flew into fits of rage are made in The End of the Party, an explosive new book by The Observer's Andrew Rawnsley. He says the head of the civil service warned the PM to curb his volcanic temper and stop abusing staff. Gordon Brown admits he's not perfect. This is what Peter Mandelson said yesterday. I don't think he so much bullies people uh, as is very, is very demanding uh, mm. of people. He's demanding of himself. He's demanding of people around him. Um, he knows what he wants to do. He does not like taking no for an answer. Tom Clark, Guardian leader, writer and presenter of our Politics Weekly podcast, is with me. Tom, how much damage has this done to Gordon Brown? We don't know just yet. Peter Mandelson did a very good job on Sunday's Andrew Marr programme of saying that it was all a storm in the teacup. Uh, yes, the Prime Minister might throw his newspapers on the floor, but we all know Prime Ministers have done that in the past, and no one should be too shocked about it. I think the big question is whether Gordon Brown can convince people that this anger isn't a great cause, or whether it's him actually getting angry about a storm in the teacup. Because we have heard allegations before about Gordon Brown's temper and that he's difficult to work with, and yep. perhaps people have already made up their mind about that. I think people probably know that he can be a kind of grumpy man. The idea that not just cabinet ministers he's negotiating or special advisers, but kind of more lowly staff in number 10 are scared to approach him with stuff, which is at least suggested by uh, Andrew Rawnsley, is more damaging because people think he's, he's not just picking on his own type, if you like. But I'm not sure that how much that can be made to stick. It's all off the record stuff. And are we going to start seeing former secretaries coming out and saying, I was shouted at by Gordon Brown, it was very scary. Unless we do... I'm not sure it will really stick. Having said that, the Conservatives already got in the bottom of their draw a load of quotes from the likes of Charles Clark and Frank Field and, uh, of course, Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt saying this man's not up to it. And what this book does is creates an atmosphere in which those posters and those quotes that are going to be flung at Brown in the election will have all the more resonance. Although Labour's had some success uh, in recent months in uh, narrowing the Tories' lead in the polls, and uh, of course Conservatives would like nothing more than to turn this into uh, the election into a discussion about Gordon Brown's character, but do you think that would be fertile ground for them? I don't know, they've got to play it a bit carefully, haven't they? Because if they start... I mean, David Cameron spent five years trying to stop the Conservative Party being the nasty party and going all out for a character assassination. Tories almost did with the devil eyes against Tony Blair in 1997. Makes it look like they're still stuck in the kind of nasty 
party role. I mean, what's wonderful about this for them is that the character assassination bit is being done in the press, indeed in the liberal press, um, and by in remarks from former Gordon Brown aides, rather than them having to do it. So th- this is, in a way, the best of all worlds for them. They can let other people make the kind of poisonous hay, and then they can stand well back and pretend that they're nice and respectable people. What about Andrew Rawnsley's allegations in the book that uh, cabinet ministers were sort of plotting against him? Jack Straw um, sounding out um, opinions on uh, whether whether he might replace Gordon Brown a year into his premiership and so on. Alistair Darling's dissatisfaction with his, his neighbour in Downing Street. I mean, does that have any potential to sort of derail Labour's fight back? I don't think that's going to have anything like the impact it would have done because we've had three kind of near coups now, haven't we? We had uh, one in um, 2008 and then we had 2009 and then we had the start of this year as well. And in each case, there's been a coup, it's come, they've tried to do it and it's failed. So although the names involved, Jack Straw might not have been a name involved in the previous plots, I think the public has got the message. There's a lot of people at the top of the Labour Party who maybe would like to manoeuvre Gordon Brown out, but it turns out that he's quite solid and he's not been manoeuvred out so far. And I don't think yet another instalment of that kind of phenomenon is going to change opinion all that much. Tom Clark. And we've got full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also today we've got full coverage of the BAFTAs, the big winners, the speeches and of course the frocks. Guardian.co.uk slash film. Also on the Guardian's website... I'm Paolo Bandini. On the sports site today, we have all the reaction to the weekend's Premier League games. We have our Football Weekly podcast. Jamie Jackson has all the details on why Jose Mourinho thinks a stronger Chelsea team wouldn't have lost as many games. And we also have all the latest from the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. That's all coming up today on Guardian.co.uk Sport. Health officials are considering a radical shift in the war against HIV and AIDS. They're looking into the possibility of testing everyone for the virus and putting people who test positive on drugs for the rest of their lives. Ian Sample, our science correspondent, is at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in San Diego. Well, this is quite a radical suggestion, but it comes from a former WHO, World Health Organization epidemiologist, um, who is now working in South Africa for another institute. And he is saying, and he's got a lot of backing, it has to be said, that what we really need to do is just start doing universal testing for HIV and then giving everyone who comes up positive antiretroviral drugs. In one sense, you can see it as an admission that work on HIV vaccines is not going very quickly or very well. Um, The other aspect is that the one success story probably I'd say in HIV research is that antiretroviral drugs work incredibly well. They keep people alive till a fairly standard lifespan. The problem is that as much as you can keep those people alive, you don't do anything to stop transmission. So the epidemic is still growing. And the idea here is that you use these drugs, the one thing we know that works against HIV, to actually clamp down on the transmission and, and to actually stop the, um, the epidemic growing itself. When you say universal testing, uh, we're talking about everyone in the world. Essentially, we are. Certainly, you would roll this out immediately in the, uh, the most affected areas. And if you think there are 30 million people, give or take, globally living with HIV, obviously a lot more who have it who don't know, half of those are, sorry, a quarter of those are in southern Africa, and half of that quarter is in South Africa itself. So you would focus on the hotspots. And, and the economics of this will make less sense as you go to areas where HIV is increasingly rare. But 
the idea is essentially that you do universal testing. This isn't, you know, going around and imposing, but you basically have this as a standard. When you go to the, your GP for something routine, it would be just something that they would test for to keep an eye on levels of the, of the infection. And it, it's going to be more effective in areas where this is rife. But look, I mean, these guys are looking at doing trials in, in Washington, D.C., um, in other parts of the U.S., and, and, and in Africa. Now, Ian, this has been uh, discussed at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, You're in San Diego. What else has been discussed there? Well, there's been the whole range of things. I mean, we've had stories on uh, scientists putting out um, guidelines to Hollywood on how they should deal with science in science fiction movies, but I'll move quickly on from that one. I mean, with the, one of the interesting ones I thought was Cambridge uh, researchers at Addenbrooke's Hospital are about to start the, the world's largest clinical trial of an immunotherapy for treating children with peanut allergy. This allergy is incredibly debilitating and, and frightening for, for children, and it's, it's it's the most common food allergy there is um, among children, as far as I'm aware. All sorts of uh, unpleasantness, and it can be fatal. Now, this study at Addenbrooke's, um, which is based on a, a really successful pilot study, is going to look at uh, just over 100 kids over the next um, few years. And essentially, it works by desensitizing them to peanut proteins. And the way you do that is you give them a tiny amount of peanut flour mixed into yogurt for a while, and then you step up the dose by increasing the amount of peanut flour mixed into this yogurt, and you give it to them daily. And this has to go on for like two or three years. And it's, they have so far got um, a lot of children who can tolerate up to sort of five peanuts a day, even more actually, um, and so they don't have to worry about what they eat anymore. And this big-scale trial is the one that's going to really know whether this can become what you might sort of you know call start calling a cure for peanut allergy in sample fans of doctor who will have the chance on wednesday to bid for some incredible collector's items dozens of monsters costumes and props actually used in doctor who tv shows are going under the hammer at bonhams in knightsbridge in london The lots are drawn from several decades of the sci-fi series dating back to the John Pertwee era. Andrew Beach from BBC Worldwide told The Guardian's Sam Jones about some of the highlights of the auction. Andrew, we're in a rather remarkable room, um, surrounded by lots of terrifying monsters from many different galaxies. Can you just uh, point out some of the uh, most arresting exhibits to us, please? Well, I think the things that are going to be most interesting to the general public are going to be we have two Daleks here from the, the classic series from the late 1980s, uh, a cream and gold imperial version, and its nemesis, the Dalek Supreme, which is the black and gold version. I mean, they are perennially um, popular, so obviously I think there's going to be a lot of interest in those. We also had several Cybermen, again, from the late 1980s. Um, to the extent possible, we've actually put the costumes together with the correct uh, accessories so that they're specific to the story they appeared in. It hasn't been possible uh, on every single occasion, but we have actually identified in the catalogue when you have a a slightly mismatched pair of boots or gloves. So is there a lot of pressure from fans to get the exhibits spot on? Uh, Absolutely. If you do make a mistake with these things, you'll certainly hear about it. The unfortunate thing is that given the length of time the programme has been running, both in terms of its classic um, incarnation and the new version, an awful lot of folklore has built up over the years and some of it actually isn't quite correct. So you'll very often get people out there who you know claim an expertise in the show which can't necessarily be um, validated by the surviving documentation and other um, testimony we can get from the people who worked on the program now some of the poor sidemen don't look uh, how can i put they don't look very well (laughs) 
Well, part of the reason for that is that three or four of them are the actual, inverted commas, destroyed versions, which would have been used for shots where they've just been blown up or shot or whatever. But uh, quite apart from that, the unfortunate thing with, with the Cybermen, the main flight suit part of the costume, and indeed a lot of the other rubber-based or foam-based monsters, is that over time, of course, the, um, the materials do perish. You have to appreciate that these costumes were made so that a television programme could be made, and the intention was that they'd be used for a couple of weeks maximum, and then that would be it. It was never conceived at the time there would be this lasting interest in them and therefore some of them are beginning to look a little worse for wear. And that's one of the reasons, really, for the, um, for the sale, because um, obviously the BBC is retaining iconic examples of each individual thing. There are still original Daleks and Cybermen which are being held back. Some of the original Doctor's costumes and Companions costumes are being kept also. But where it's got to the point with third and fourth versions of, say, a, a particular monster where they really need some specialist TLC, it's neither the BBC's remit and they don't really have the resources to plough into doing that kind of thing. So why not let the enthusiasts, some of whom actually work within the industry and are, are, are effects people themselves, take these things away, stabilise them, renovate them and then you know, be able to look after them either at home or learn, learn them back for exhibition. What's your favourite costume or creation here? Uh, it's very difficult to say. There are all sorts of things for different reasons. I mean, the Daleks, obviously, are just such a fantastic design. I mean, it, it's tribute to Raymond Cusick, who actually designed the physical aspects of it. He was a BBC designer at the time, uh, 1963, that they have really had this enduring appeal and the fact that they've come back just as strong as ever in the new series. So, obviously, they are very important. Costume in the corner just over there, the pirate captain from a, a programme in 1978, Pirate Planet, I'm very fond of because that story was written by Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame. A quite a quirky, offbeat, zany story, which you'd expect from a, a, a writer of Douglas's calibre. Um, and there are all sorts of um, things in here that are really quite a, it's quite a treasure trove of memories for and me. What do, you, what do you think might be the star of the auction? What's going to attract the most interest? Um, difficult to say because it's going to be interesting to see the mix of sort of old series fans and new series fans and indeed fans of the whole lot but I think really there's going to be a huge amount of interest in the two costumes from the recent story Village of the Damned because you've got the only complete David Tennant costume admittedly his dinner suit rather than the iconic um, striped pinstripe and, um, and overcoat and of course Kylie Minogue's waitress dress I mean anything to do with Kylie Minogue is bound to be incredibly um, sought after Andrew Beach talking to Sam Jones. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. In Afghanistan, NATO is currently fighting the Taliban in a major operation in Helmand province. But after Helmand, NATO's next objective is to tackle the Taliban in its stronghold of Kandahar. Saeed Shah is in Kabul for The Guardian. He explains why Kandahar's so important. They've said that the current offensive, which is taking place in, in Helmand province, which is also uh, in the south of Afghanistan, will move on to Kandahar this summer or, or by early summer. We're going to see what is probably going to be the, uh, the sort of decisive battle of the war in Afghanistan because Kandahar actually is much more important than Helmand. Why is that? Well, uh, essentially, politically and logistically, it, it's much more central to Afghanistan than Helmand is. In Britain in particular, we've, we've sort of focused on Helmand because, you know, British forces are, are, are concentrated in Helmand. But Kandahar is the seat of political power. You know, it's where the royal family ruled from. It's where Mullah Umar ruled from when the Taliban were in power. It's the place where President Karzai comes from. Kandahar is next to uh, Pakistan. It's an easy car ride 
from the Pakistani city of Quetta, where basically the Taliban leadership has been living in secret exile to Kandahar. So, you know, the lines of communication are very close there. So for all these reasons, um, you know, Kandahar really is the big prize, certainly as far as the Taliban is concerned. And, you know, the sort of NATO-led coalition is increasingly realizing this. Why have they come to realize this after so many years fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan? Well, there are a lot of puzzling aspects. Partly it's the fact that they didn't have enough troops to commit to Kandahar before. And uh, if you remember, President Obama has ordered 30,000 more American troops there. So they will have more troops to, to handle Kandahar. And the other thing is that uh, people were rather distracted by the fact that Helmand is the big heroin producer in Afghanistan, which is obviously part of the insurgency because it, you know, it speaks to the financing of the insurgency. So Helmand had a lot of attention, more attention really than it deserved in terms of its importance as far as the Taliban was concerned. And to what extent does a push on Kandahar this summer depend on what happens in Helmand province, the success of the operation there? I think it will depend quite largely on that because uh, basically in, um, in Helmand what they're doing is they're showcasing or trialling the new US formulated military strategy in Afghanistan which involves using a lot more troops and then very quickly moving in civilians to try and normalise the situation very quickly and uh, most importantly avoiding civilian casualties. So these three things that they're trialing in Helmand and so far it's going relatively well and I think we can see the same sort of approach in Kandahar although the situation as far as the insurgency is concerned in Kandahar has rather different characteristics. In what way are they different? What we've seen in Helmand is big concentrations of Taliban in one place. They've been driven out of a number of small towns and the last one in central Helmand is this place, Marja, which they are currently attacking. In Kandahar, the Taliban is much more spread out and it is more sort of integrated into the community. So the target, the enemy, if you like, is not so obvious in Kandahar because there is not that one uh, obvious target as we've seen in, in Marja. So the operation will have to be more spread out, I think more intelligence-led uh, and you know, pretty much more sophisticated. Saeed Shah. Ian Chambers was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.